Welcome to the American Countryside Podcast. I'm Andrew McRae, host of the daily syndicated show, American Countryside, heard on over 100 radio stations and XM Channel 147. I go on location and meet the people and places that tell the fascinating stories of past and present. And the American Countryside Podcast allows you to hear the full interview with our guests. On this edition of our show, I take you to the country of Iran in 1979. Tom Schaefer was working in the U.S. Embassy when he and others were taken hostage for 444 days. It's an amazing story of keeping mind, body, and faith strong in one of the most difficult times a person could face. We sat down to visit at his home in Peoria, Arizona. First of all, Tom, thanks for taking the time to, to visit about your experiences. Let's just go back to 1978 and tell me about what's going to lead you to take a trip to the, the other side of the world. I was up in Minot, North Dakota, and had completed my second winter up there. I was a full colonel and wasn't going to get any further promotion, so I said, why am I working so hard up here in the cold? And we found out that they wanted uh, some volunteers in the military attache business. So my wife and I decided, let's get out of Minot and find some nice warm country somewhere in the world. And we picked the garden spot of the world, which just happened to be <laughs> Iran. Uh, at the time, it was the garden spot. There wasn't any problems with revolutions or anything. And uh, so we first had to go before a panel to make sure that we were qualified to do this. And uh, the only funny part of it was that there were generals and State Department people like and uh, one of the questions asked of my wife was, well, what are you going to do if you find out your husband has been taken, captured? I forgot what her answer was. Or another question was, what are you going to do if you uh, have a dinner party for 30 and only 12 show up? And she says, I'll probably get fat. So, anyways, we were accepted. Had to go to language school. That was 14 and a half months. Attaché school was a few more months. And then uh, I went to Dynamics of International Terrorism School. So I got well prepared to take over as the defense attaché in Iran, um, which is a Air Force full colonel slot. We uh, went over in May of 1978, which was well before the uh, embassy takeover. We were there at the beginnings of the revolution, which I could see in my job of traveling around Air Force bases. and It got really bad in uh, the end of 1978, there were riots and burning of downtown Tehran, and uh, we could see the forthcoming revolution. So then in January of 1979, I went out to Maribad Airport and watched the Shah leave. And then on the uh, 11th of February of 1979, I watched uh, Khomeini come in with millions of other people there at Maribad. And then... Uh, on the 14th of February of 1979, actually was the first takeover of the embassy, and we had lost all of our security except 15 Marine Guards. Now, 15 Marine Guards are a pretty solid group of people, but when you're in the center of a city of 4 million people with a thousand thousand of screaming Iranians, there's not much you can do to protect yourself. And uh, thankfully, we did not try to fight them. We just said, okay, come on in, folks, but... It was uh, really it was a pretty good firefight, but it was all inbound. Uh, none of our guards, none of our Marines ever shot their pistols on that one. I've heard that was the case. Why didn't they shoot to protect the embassy, though? Because uh, we had a g good uh, ambassador there, uh, 
And he's a former Navy guy. I kind of liked him. And he said, uh, we're not going to fight with these people. We're not going to shoot a shot unless your life is directly at stake. You can defend yourself. But other than that, we're not going to fight it out. And we didn't. And, you know, we had a good bunch of Marines, good disciplined guys, and uh, they did not shoot, so we all lived through that. And uh, that only lasted probably about eight hours, but it was the first of three times I was taken captive there in Iran. Well, the first time was at uh, Valentine's Day of 1979, the 14th of February. Like I say, that only lasted about, I don't know, six, seven, eight hours. And the next uh, was in... About a month later, in March of 1979, I was asked up into the ambassador's office. And he said, Tom, he said, how would you like to go up to our listening post on the Soviet border and bring home 20 CIA people who are being held hostage up there? I said, oh. (laughs) And he went on to say, well, we've got a letter from the prime minister authorizing you to go, plus we have a half million dollars in here that... uh, the CIA is providing him because we all know that you get things done over there with money. So um, to make a long story short, I, oh, the only question I had was, can I take my assistant air attache with me? And he says, take whoever you want. I wanted him because uh, he also spoke the language, which I did, and uh, I didn't want to do it alone. <laughs> I'm not fearless. But uh, so we flew up there in a Running C-130, running C-130 air crew, that's kind of a challenge. And landed on a 3,900-foot broken McAdam strip three miles from the Soviet border. Deplaned to find ourselves the 21st and 22nd hostages. But it wasn't a, I would say, a normal, what one would think of a hostage situation. We knew that these workers were not going to get any more money once they closed that site down up there. And I kind of thought that, uh, well, we'll give them some severance pay. So uh, we landed probably about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. By 1 o'clock in the morning, I negotiated with them to the point I only had to give them one-third of that half million dollars. They didn't even know how much we had. And Harry was my assistant. Air attache was keeper of the funds and in another room with a briefcase full of the money. So... uh, all 22 of us got on the airplane about 2 o'clock in the morning and came back home. Just came at least to Tehran. Those 20 went on to back to the United States. And then, it, then came along the final time, the 4th of November of 1979, when again they took over the embassy. Uh, again, we could not really defend ourselves, and I don't think we really wanted to shoot it out with them. Uh, we would have let a lot of... Uh, body bags floating around at that time if we did. But I didn't think it would last that long. In fact, even our captors didn't think it was going to last that long. Not until Khomeini kind of sprinkled his holy water on the whole thing and said, you done well. And then they, because they were ready to probably leave in three to four or five days. But once they got the okay by Khomeini, that's when they stayed on. And then the primary purpose, I believe, was to used the hostages to trade to get the Shah back. And that's what they were hoping for, not realizing the United States doesn't do things like that. And uh, they were kind enough to, uh, to allow the women and all but one, all but two women and all but one black were released early. 
they thought they the guards thought well that looks rather magnanimous for us to be doing this uh but the two girls were officers and uh the one black fella uh was in the big security room upstairs and they locked themselves into it till they destroyed all the classified equipment and by the time they, he opened the door, it didn't matter what color he was. He was going to stay with us. <laughs> what happened to your wife during all of this? Uh, the Shaw left on the 17th of January. My wife left on the 31st of January, less than two weeks before the uh, revolution. And uh, she was one of those that if my husband's there, I'm there. And there were two other women, the ambassador's wife and the the Air Force Two Star's wife, he was head of the Armish Mag. So the three of them were the last uh, of the dependents who worked in either the Armish Mag or the uh, embassy. But uh, finally the ambassador said, you're, you're going. So they brought in a C-141 to take them out, and it just happened to be a crew that I knew quite well, and I was head of the operations up at McCord Air Force Base, a young lieutenant, and... He took all three of them on board, and somehow my wife ended up in the cockpit, and the general's wife and Bassery's wife were back in the cargo section (laughs) for her flight back to Athens. But anyway, she did, fortunately, she did leave. It would have been a tough challenge if I had had my wife. Now, six of the hostages, well, they weren't hostages, six of the embassy people got out through the back door and we're, or was it eight? Eight. 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 Uh, got out through the back door and ended up in the Canadian embassy. Ambassador Taylor then uh, turned them all into Canadians and got them out of the, right through the airport and everything to get back here. It took them a while to train them to be Canadians, to <laughs> but they they learned. So I, I, I praise uh, Ambassador Taylor because... There could have been other countries that might have offered, but it was the Canadians that did it. Was there ever any talk of the staff leaving, closing the embassy because the situation was getting rough, though? No, I uh, I had gone back sometime in 79, the summer of 79, and I talked with our DIA chief. Who, and I said, you know, we ought to decrease the number of people in our uh, attache office, defense attache office. And his only response, what, what are you afraid? I says, yeah, I am afraid for these other people. We got too many people over there, and uh, I think someday they're probably going to come back. And we should have done it with uh, the State Department people too and and even maybe closed the embassy and had a few people in the Swiss embassy or something like that or the British Embassy, you know, we could we could work a mission minimally with working in somebody else's embassy, which we've done before. But we didn't do that, so we were a prime target, and especially when we couldn't defend ourselves. So who was it then that actually took over the embassy? We always hear that it was students, but was it really students that stormed the embassy? Uh, that's the biggest myth of the whole, uh, of all the journalists over there, that uh, they were students. Yes, some were students. But some that I, and I could speak their language, so I'd ask, well, if you're a student, what are you studying? Where do you go to school? Well, they admit they weren't students. 
they, they saw a good chance of, uh, of overrunning an embassy and probably getting three meals a day that, when they weren't used to getting. And uh, they, some of them were not educated. There were a few that were. Um, I think the present president of Iran was one of them. Now, the only reason I say that, I could not say yes or no. He was a leader or one of the leaders of that takeover. But my friend, uh, assistant air attache, said, I know every pimple on his face. <laughs> he interrogated me for thirty over 30 hours. He said, I know that's the man. So I will take his... Uh, decision that, uh, yes, he was a member of the team. When they stormed the embassy and took you hostage, did you think that was going to be a longer ordeal than the previous times? Not really, no. I just kind of thought, well, maybe it'll be a little longer, but three or four days probably we'll get out of here, get them out, and we'll start doing our job again. But then after a couple of weeks, and I heard what some of the things they wanted, and the fact that they had gotten the blessing of Khomeini, and it all added up. To, I said to him, you're in for the long haul. As a matter of fact, uh, probably within the first probably within the first month, I was in a room by myself, but I could talk through a vent in the wall to another fellow. And his first question was, uh, how long are you going to be here? I said, I don't know. Are you a wagering type individual? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, let's make a bet on it. He said, I don't have any money. I said, I don't either. They took everything I have. Put on a piece of paper where you think you're going home, and I'll do the same. Whoever comes closest wins 50 bucks. Well, he had picked sometime in April, and this is probably in maybe maybe January that we did this. And he had picked April, and then I had picked November. <laughs> so I got the 50 bucks. But anyways, no, I felt that probably after two or three weeks that we're in here for the long haul. So make the best of it. Do the best you can. And... uh and I did, and I there's some basic ingredients for my success. So uh, I won't put them in priority order. I'll say the the top priority to last. But first of all, I was, I'm pretty well trained for this. I'd been to the survival schools, the dynamics of international terrorism school. Uh, I knew well that in most hostage situations, they want you alive and well because you are an asset to them. You're not good if you're dead. Not like being a POW where it could care less about you. But I knew this. I knew they wanted us alive. So that made me feel pretty good. Plus, I, my behavior patterns became different knowing that they wouldn't kill me. <laughs> At times, I thought they might. They were possibly were going to put us on trial. But so I had, uh, plus I was a senior person for about 25 military people. That automatically makes you the commander. You set the example, and uh, you try to help them out the best you can. And it wasn't just Tom Schaefer I was concerned about. I had 25 guys there, some who never had any training whatsoever in survival. So um, that made my job, I think, easier. I mean... There was other people to think about other than myself, so that was good. And then uh, I uh, had a strong faith in the Lord. Uh, I come from a strong Christian family. I have two brothers who are Lutheran ministers. And when I went into captivity, I knew the Lord quite well. I knew the power of prayer quite well. 
and uh, I might have been a practicing Christian. I became a participating Christian in captivity. There's a major difference there, by the way. And uh, uh, I used prayer every day, several times a day. I know in the beginning of my days, it was always a prayer. Lord, give us the strength to get through another 24 hours. At the end of the day, thank you, Lord, you did it. You got us through. And there were times for special prayers. Uh, from the 28th of January until the 11th of February of 1980, I was put in cold storage for interrogations into a room with no windows, a locked door, and the temperature hovered between 40 and 45 degrees, and I had one thin blanket and a metal chair. That was all that was in the room. And even to keep warm, I could go to the bathroom. bathroom had heat. I tried to stay there as long as I could. But I even wrapped toilet paper around my legs and my arms and to get insulated enough. I was walking on the average, uh, oh, about six miles a day. But in that cold room, I was walking up to 10, 12. I think one day I may have even walked 14 miles, just back and forth to keep warm. And if I ever find that room, I'll know which one it is because I wore the wax off the floor walking. But that and prayer, and uh, I can remember vividly getting down on my knees and saying, Lord, I can't do this alone. I need your strength. I need your help. And I I don't normally tell how fast, but I swear to, Lord, I need that pretty soon. And uh, I don't like to suspense the Lord. I don't think anyone needs to, but uh, with a little P.S., throw in a warm room. But uh, we got through it after two weeks. Uh, there were some bad days, but uh, made that through. And pretty much after that, uh, uh, it could be very boring because I spent about 150 days in solitary. And uh, the only thing you do in solitary is exercise and read and sing. <laughs> and my days were normally, uh, oh, and by the way, I only took, my goal was to get through 24 hours. I never looked beyond that. I said I could stand on my head for 24 hours if I had to. Plus, I'm a a very strong competitor, have been all my life. To me, it was just going to be another competition. Either I won or lost, and I was about to lose. In fact, I even told one of my guards that early on. I said, you know what? I'm going to win this race because I'm going to get home, get back home to the United States, but you're going to have to stay here in Iran, and that means you lose. <laughs> Saw that guy on the last day, and I repeated that to him. He said, well, is there any chance I can get to the United States? I said, don't bank on it. <laughs> but anyways, I did keep myself very productive. I read over 200 books. I taught myself German. Fortunately, we had the Toronto American High School's library books, that were brought into the embassy for safekeeping well before the revolution, they'd close the high school down. So we had access to books, good books. So I found that they had four German language textbooks. My heritage is German. In the first five years of my life, I probably spoke as much German as I spoke English because uh, my grandmother was uh, only spoke German and went to German Lutheran services and things like that. But anyway, I said, yeah, it'd be nice to learn German again. So about an hour and a half a day for many months, I studied, relearned German, to read, write, and speak German. Exercised on the average of four hours a day. And part of that was getting up to a, th- uh, a thousand push-ups a day. And I didn't think that was too bad for a 50-year-old grandfather. <laughs> I, uh, I did read a lot. I memorized a lot. And uh, I sang a lot. I 
used to sing in church choirs and high school glee club, college glee club, fraternity octet, you name it. And I would sing out loud, try to remember every word of every hymn or song or patriotic tune or fraternity song, whatever. And I'd sing out loud. Now, the guards didn't like that. They thought I was sending coded messages to the other octet. I wasn't. I just wanted to keep that mind working, too. I was very concerned about losing it upstairs, and I didn't want that. So I kept myself physically fit and mentally fit, uh, relatively speaking. I mean, I lost 35 pounds, and, but I was still able to get up and walk around. Now, I know all this because I kept a diary, and at first it was a written diary on a piece of paper, but when I'd left the the room to go to the bathroom or whatever, uh, the guards would steal my diary. So then I said, well, you know, you got to be a little smarter. How are you going to keep a diary they, they cannot see, and what would you keep it in? So I know from moving many times that the only thing they allowed me to have extra other than my clothes and toothbrush was uh, the Bible. So I said, well, you're going to have to put it in the Bible, but you can't write it. So eventually, through thinking about this day after day, I came up with the idea, we'll find a pin, and with that pin, poke holes over certain letters and certain lines on certain pages, each page becoming a day, like, or at least up to page 31, 131, or whatever. But uh, like page 624 would be the 24th of June. And I did keep track of how many miles I walked, how many hours of exercise, when I had a hot shower, when I went outside. But, see, those didn't occur very often, so most of your days were pretty boring. Uh, I even played bridge by myself. I made up cards with pieces of paper. And I found, it's funny, I never lost. <laughs> I found the hardest people, at least those people who play bridge, would be to finesse for a king when you know you're going to lose it. I don't know if you're a bridge player or not. <laughs> well, uh, But, uh, you know, I did a lot of things that... Uh, kept my mind working and, and did a lot of praying. And that really my bottom line is that uh, I put my hand in the hand of the Lord and together we did it. And uh, there were some that didn't know the Lord so well. And uh, I would say, generally speaking, those who had the Lord did pretty good. But, uh, you know, fortunately I had a, a solid upbringing with the Christian beliefs. Right. And uh, there are others the same way. We had uh, two uh, suicide attempts. Uh, one fellow, young guy from State Department, had no survival training. This may have been his first assignment from the State Department outside of Washington. And uh, he wasn't that well prepared to be a hostage. And at the beginning, he started cooperating with the guards and I think, and I never knew this until he roomed with me, but this was uh, a case where he eventually he knew he did wrong, and he couldn't stand that. So he wanted to end his life, so he slashed his, his wrists, and fortunately didn't do the job of, of killing himself. And uh, he came to room with me right after the rescue attempt with his bandages all wrapped around his wrists and still losing a little blood. And and I don't think it was coincidental that he came into was in my room. He was young enough to be my son, and I think 
they wanted him to stay alive, and they probably thought I would could have a fatherly influence on this young man. And uh, I did. I, I found out that he did believe in God, and he believed in prayer, and I got him to start praying. And instead of staying up in their bunk doing nothing, I got him down to eat, exercise, converse with us. Found out he was a, a librarian by trade, but he was a skilled reader, a fast reader. So if we got a new book or something, we give it to him. Now his responsibility was to give a summary of the book with a, with a recommendation whether we ought to read it or not. So it gave him responsibility, and that's what he needed. So I think he's doing well today. I won't mention him by name, but geez, uh, I was very proud of the guy that he came out all right out of that. But um, all in all, uh, my faith in country, I don't think uh, varied uh, too much. Uh, I still love my country. There was a few days I probably said, uh, Jimmy, baby, get off your butt and do something. But then I I could reason that the, there's very little he could do. Yes, he was the, the president of the strongest nation in the world. But uh, in this situation, there's not much he could do. And uh, I, I just prayed he wouldn't pick some of the options that maybe other presidents might have picked. But to send in the Marines or something like that and pick up 53 plastic bags with our remains, that wasn't a very good option. Call on the B-52s or something like that and just destroy the cities of Iran and kill and maim millions of people, that wasn't much of an option. So he, he had the patience and maturity to just keep trying to negotiate. And, of course, then uh, Reagan came along, and uh, I do believe... And talking with my guards, they were going to keep us hostage as long as President Carter was in power. Three minutes after Reagan became president, we were on our way home. So that kind of proved it. But I kind of helped that situation a little bit because the guards were asking me what I thought about Reagan after I found out he was nominated and, uh, and elected. And I said, oh, you don't want to wait for Reagan. He's tough. He's decisive. Then I got to say, well, you, you do remember Truman and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, they they didn't remember much about it. And then, uh, nor did they know anything about uh, the Pearl Harbor. I had to let them people know that there was something that started that war. But I said, you know, once Reagan becomes president, I think probably within a few days, the first thing you're going to see is a... 1.1 megaton dropped over Gom. Gom is the religious capital. That takes out Khomeini and all of his followers. I happen to know the yields of these weapons because I carried them in B-52s. And then I said, maybe three days later, there's going to be a 4.0 megaton that's going to be dropped over Gom, and every one of you expertists and the rest of us are going together. And my other guys got bigger. To, uh, I wasn't the only one doing this. Others of the hostages said, don't wait for Reagan. You'll be sorry. So th three minutes after he's president, we're on our way home. So that wasn't a coincidence. But it was uh, several reasons. So there, one that I think they finally figured out that this was the the worst they could do for Carter was not release us under his watch. Did you have any inkling when you were getting close to being released? Not too much because, uh, you know, I was looking for good signs. Well, the good signs were that the uh, Algerian doctors were there to give us physicals. And uh, we never had physicals before, and that always is a kind of a good sign. But I asked one of the doctors, I said, does this mean we're going home? He says, I don't know. I don't know if we're, 
I'm going to get out of here. That's the Algerian doctor. I said, oh, okay. But uh, the next day we did through the Algerian airliner. You mentioned that sometimes you were in solitary confinement and then sometimes you roomed with other hostages. Did that change over time, and, and how did they decide what they wanted to do with you? Well, I think that uh, several of the senior people and anyone that was CIA was put into solitary, and that's why I spent about 150 days in solitary. And I remember about 100 of those days were in the Avene prison in a six-by-nine-foot room, but I was exercising about four hours a day in that room. Seldom got outside, but... Uh, you know, they bring my meals in and everything. But uh, we could talk at times to some of the other fellows if the guards went to sleep or something. Or we used the tap code. I don't know if you've heard of that. You, you know, the Morris codes is dots and dashes. Well, you can discern nothing between a dot and a dash and a brick wall. But you can discern a dot from a dot from a dot, 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 or whatever. And, and it's all dots. It's a series of uh, uh, up to five letters in each, or five dots in each series. And uh, like A is da-dot, B is dot-da-dot. After a while, you can learn that, and you can talk through the wall. But during the entire time, I doubt they really wanted you communicating with one another. Is that right? No, they no, they didn't. Uh, I remember early on that uh, for about the first two months, I could not talk freely with a fellow American. I'd get into the bathroom, and I found that uh, I knew these people... Culturally, a male would not look upon another male's naked body. So I start stripping down this bathroom because there's another American in there. Before I got my jockey shorts off, the guards were out of the room so I could talk to an American. Well, that only worked probably two or three times, and they figured that one out. They weren't going to allow me in there with another American. But uh, uh, at least we, we could communicate a little bit. We left a lot of notes in the bathrooms. One of the easiest things you do is... You have a pencil when you go in there and write on the toilet paper, roll it down a little bit, write on the toilet paper, roll it back up. They don't use toilet paper, see, so <laughs> you could always pass a message on. There's a lot of other ways we did it. But we were able to communicate uh, not as well as we liked. And for the most part, I never had more than three roommates. Right at the end, I think I had five or six, but only for a couple of weeks. How often were you bound during that time then? Oh, it varied considerably. Uh, in the beginning, we were bound. But I think, I don't think that lasted more than two or three weeks. But every time we were moved, I remember uh, after the rescue attempt on April 23rd, 24th, um, we were moved out, uh, bound, gagged, and uh, blindfolded thrown in the back of a car, probably with, I don't know, three, four, five others, hostages, and all I know, we traveled about four hours out in the middle of the desert and got to a place I never knew where we were. To this day, I, I don't know where we were. Other than the fact, we named it the White Hole. It was a pretty dirty, filthy place. <laughs> I don't know how long I was there, but I moved 22 times, and the longest was 100 days in the Avene prison. I, I remember the Comate prison. That's another one. I spent... Uh, I don't know how many weeks there, maybe a couple months. Did they start moving you more after that failed rescue attempt in, in April of 1980? No, they started right before. Uh, I think they wanted us dispersed anyways. <clears throat> but uh, after the rescue attempt, they really dispersed us. 
Some of them went up to Tabriz, which is up in the northwest part of Iran. I think some went to eastern poorer cities. All I know, I went somewhere out down in the desert. So, but that, uh, you know, it's 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 too bad that rescue didn't work. It could have. The reason I say that is, uh, well, there's many reasons, but the main reason we're all back at the embassy because the Red Cross came to see us. So the uh, revolutionaries decided, well, let's show them how nice the embassy can be. Well, it was real nice. We had ping pong tables and. I think we had uh, <clears throat> mattresses to sleep on, and uh, then the Red Cross came to see us, and the fellow that came in to see me was a Swiss captain in the Red Cross, and he said, you know, this is not too bad. I said, oh, no, not at all. Please stick around so we can enjoy it. So he got the message. It's all put up. But once they left, <laughs> we were dispersed again. But why would there, right, I think it must have been right after Red Cross left, before they dispersed us, they had the rescue attempt because they knew we were there. They even knew what rooms we were in. What intelligence was the U.S. able to get in order to know details like that? Well, it was the cook. Our embassy, or ambassador's cook, who was still there. Now, this is what I've been told. And he got out I guess several days before the takeover, and and I'm sure we had other means of gathering intelligence there. Whenever they would interrogate you, what types of information were they looking for? The interrogations weren't that good. I mean, uh, they were not Russians. They were amateur interrogators. Like when they come into the room, they'd bring four chairs, three for them, one for me, and one was happened to be a draftsman stool. Well, I always quickly got the draftsman school duel because I was sitting above him. I already had a distinct advantage. Plus, on all interrogations, I told him they had to be in English. Now, I understood Farsi, but uh, for two reasons. One, I could hear it, the question in Farsi, and by the time they asked it in English, I already had an answer. So you get a quick, positive answer. And, you know, that, that makes a big difference. Uh, plus, they were not good interrogators because I'd get off on a tangent and talk about something for hours, it seemed like, and, and they're even taking notes. But uh, uh, like they wanted, they had my passport, and I had taken a, a trip in our own aircraft. I was a pilot for Undersecretary Newsom to go to New Delhi, to Kabul, Afghanistan, to Islamabad. Kabul, Afghanistan, Islamabad, Pakistan, yeah. And uh, they had gotten that. What were you doing? You were spying, weren't you? And, oh, no, no, no. That was a boondoggle. No, there's no word that the interpreter can come up with for a boondoggle. So it probably took you a half hour to tell them what a boondoggle was. And then, uh, you know, this is we just wanted to go out. And I don't think they even knew we had the undersecretary with us. And we just wanted to go see these countries. We took our wives with us. It was a, a tourist thing. We would... Yeah, but you took pictures. I said, do you ever know an American to go another country without a camera? Yeah, we all take pictures. <laughs> see, they, but, see, if they were good, they never would have allowed me to go off on tangents and speak on whatever I wanted to speak about. In fact, some of us was humorous. And a little uh, humor entered into many days of my life there. Uh, I remember in the Comite prison, they put a camera in our bathroom. 
obviously not in accordance with the Geneva Convention rules, uh, although that's not in there, I don't think. But here's a camera in our bathroom. And I went, I went in there one morning, probably about 6 o'clock. Now, I had my watch because they gave it back to me. They stole it the first day with my shoes, my rings, my money, everything, except the clothing. And uh, so they gave it back to me because it wasn't working. But I put it on because it had some sentimental value. So I walked in there that one morning and looked up. Sure, night the lights on the camera indicating it's probably operating. So I took that watch to my mouth and ba 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 ba. Then I put it to my ear. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. We should. I be able to do that and a little bit more of this back and forth. And then I oh my gosh, a television camera. And I hid my arm and I walked out of view. And I was waiting for it just to run in there and rip the watch off. You know, it was my Academy Award performance. But they were all sleeping. They didn't see it. So. That was almost, uh, I would say almost for naught, but it gave me a little bit of humor. And I, I could do different things like that because uh, the fact that I pretty well knew they were not going to purposely kill me. Right. Now, there was a time right at the beginning when they started to prep me for going on trial. And uh, I knew that the trials were something I didn't want to get involved in. They are very short and very permanent. You normally never made it through midnight without being executed. But I never did go on trial. Oh, and a sidelight of that is, I found out why through President Carter. My wife became friends with President Carter, close friends. And we finally came out. We were invited down, my wife and I were invited down to Plains, Georgia to talk with the President and Mrs. Carter. We spent four and a half hours on uh, Father's Day afternoon of 1981. And one of the questions I asked him, how come I never went on trial? He got up, went to his file, brought me a letter that he had written to Khomeini. Words to the effect were, Dear Mr. Khomeini, if you choose to put but one American on trial, I will then exercise my military options. <clears throat> never went on trial. And you probably never heard of that. You never read it. I saw the letter, so I know it's true. So I, I, and I also talk about President Carter, the fact that uh, he did have the patience, and we got the out because he did the right thing. In your mind, then, President Carter did the right thing. I know that you realize plenty of people say he should have done things differently. Yeah, you know, uh, sure, send the Marines up there, but gee, they, a lot of people are going to get killed, so um, there's nothing actually that he could do within reason as far as I'm concerned. So, no, I praise him wherever I go, wherever I speak. Well, I know one thing. We're not going to attack Iran unless they drop a nuke over here and, or on Israel or Great Britain or one of our allies. But, no, I think the only thing we can do with that country is to uh, try to help their next revolution. <laughs> There's enough people that are not satisfied with what's going on in Iran, the educated people, the people who lived under the Shah and freedom, really. Uh, the Shah, is my estimation, uh, living there was he was a fairly benevolent dictator relative to other dictators. And uh, he was doing a lot for the Iranian people. Well, a lot of them knew that. And there's a, even my driver who wanted to see Khomeini come in two years later was saying, we made a wrong decision. So there's a lot of people like that, I think, who would be willing to maybe to fight for their freedom again. Of course, they have a revolutionary government, so I'm not even sure what the present president, how much power he has. He's a big talker, but the president before him, uh, Khatami, 
an easier name to pronounce than Ahmad's last name. In um, matter of fact, Khatami uh, found some nice quarters to live in in uh, the northern part of uh, Tehran, my quarters, <laughs> or the villa that I was in when we were there. But uh, it's still a revolutionary government, in, primarily controlled through them and the mullahs. And people, I would say the majority of people don't like it. So what did you do when you got back home? Did you go back overseas for another assignment anytime soon? No. I uh, actually was offered a wonderful job to be the commandant of the NATO Defense School in Oberammergau, Germany. But I turned that down. I'm still kicking myself in the pants for that one. But I said, no, I've been out of my country long enough. I want something here. I wanted to get into the ROTC business. Kind of a nice, soft job working with students. And that's what I did. I went at the University of Puget Sound up in Tacoma, Washington, and became head of the ROTC detachment there. Of course, another thing that happened when I got home, they had the Thanksgiving service at the National Cathedral for the return of the hostages. And our charge, Bruce Lang, was supposed to give the message at that service. But about 10 o'clock the night before, his wife calls me on the phone. Bruce just lost his voice. He wants you to pinch hit for him at the National Cathedral on national television. Now, would you ever accept that? You'd, you'd accept that opportunity. Well, I said, yeah, I'll do it. So there I was the next morning with my wife and two sons and their wives. <clears throat> Pretty soon the dean came up and said, you're on. So I walked up to a pulpit that appeared to be about 500 feet in the air, and I looked up and I said, Lord, you got me through 444 days. How about <laughs> give me another six or seven minutes help here? And uh, it went okay, but little did I realize that was my first talk in the beginning of a professional speaking career. And it wasn't too long after that, I went to St. John's Cathedral in New York to give a full message on Palm Sunday morning. Now, my two minister brothers were wondering, now wait a minute, we've been in this business all our lives, we don't get gigs like that. (laughs) But uh, I don't feel it was coincidental that I was asked to do that that in our National Cathedral. I think maybe the Lord was had a little something to do with it. And because even in captivity, I would say, Lord, if you allow me to return, I will sing your praises. And it wasn't a quid quo pro thing. Get me out of here, I'll go to bat for you. No, if I'm allowed to return. And uh, and that's in Psalm 13. I won't give it to you. I know what I memorized it. I say it all my talks. But if you read Psalm 13, you'll see why. It's one of the shortest psalms in the book, uh, in the book of Psalms. But... Uh, I tell people, place themselves in a six-by-nine-foot room. Now, you haven't seen an American for maybe two weeks or gone outside in two weeks. And uh, you read Psalm 13, and it really helped me a lot. I'm interested why they would let you keep a Bible during your captivity. Well, that's a, that's a good question, too, because uh, at times they would take the Bible, but I had to have that Bible because I had my secret encoded diary. So they would take it, then I'd get to my guard, and I would ask him, are you a good Muslim? Oh, abate, which means, of course. Well, would a good Muslim deny the Quran to another good Muslim? Hichfakt, that means never. I said, well, you know, you're confusing me. Why then you as a good Muslim would deny a Christian his Bible? You can almost see the wheels turn. And then my Bible had come back, and it, it was the same Bible. It happened to be a good news version, but... Uh, it's kind of worn and torn now, but only because I carry it wherever I go to speak. But uh, see, just with pinholes on certain pages, uh, 
over certain letters and certain lines. And the most important thing I kept in that diary was uh, an evaluation of how did Tom Schaefer do in captivity. And I used the first five letters of the third line of each of those pages. And uh, the evaluation was what? Number one was a very good day, two good. Three was a satisfactory day, four was a bad day, five was a very bad day. So all I needed was first five letters of the third line. And uh, I had them all, especially after those two weeks in cold storage, or during the two weeks of cold storage, I had some four and five days. But after I got out, I found I had 40 good days in a row. <laughs> and then I asked people, how many of those days do you think were satisfactory or better, were number three days or better? And they never come close. 92% of my days were satisfactory or better. See, I didn't need much. I, as part of that evaluation, you, well, what's the criteria? What makes a satisfactory day? And I need basically three things, a warm room, enough food to stay alive, and a book to read. I had all three. It was pretty much a satisfactory day. You don't need much. Tom Schaefer passed away in 2016 at the age of 85. When I met him, he showed me his Bible with pinholes over specific letters, a secret code to record what took place each day of captivity. The pinholes were only visible when you held one page up to the light. Tom mentioned that he quoted Psalm 13 when he spoke to groups. It was a passage that spoke to him during his captivity. I thought I would share it with you, as the words had to mean much to him as he was held captive. Imagine Tom in prison as he reads these words of hope. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Thanks for joining me on this story with Tom Schaefer, one of the Iranian hostages held captive for 444 days. I hope you'll join us again on another journey as we travel the countryside. In Peoria, Arizona, I'm Andrew McCray.